Hey everybody, welcome to the Plebeian Power Hour with your hosts, Tim and Tipper. Today we've decided to talk about NATO. I'm actually really excited to talk about this because they just got a new country this year um, with Finland joining in 2023. 70, what is it, four years, 73 years after it was? Yeah, so 1949 and however many years that is. Yeah. So that's a long time to decide you're going to be part of something. So this is going to be hopefully really interesting to you guys, as interesting as it was to at least me. <laughs> I had a good time. No, it's very, <laughs> it's a very interesting topic. So I'm going to go all the way back and talk about the creation of the USSR. Just to sort of get your head in the right space, in the right place. So it was created in 1922 with the Treaty of Creation. So you've got USSR, it's got countries around it, um, and the World War II has ended in 1945. And don't forget that in 1945, with the dissolution of World War II, this is when the USSR started putting down its iron curtain. And so it's starting to, because I kept wondering, you know, and we did this on the Cold War, um, why every, you know, Russia had been an ally, Soviets had been an ally in World Wars One and Two, and now they're not. So just as a reminder, they had gone in and they had started taking over the control of governments that's, that lined in Eastern Europe to kind of give them a buffer between them and the Western Europe, Western European countries. But so you have Joseph Stalin, who's the leader in 1945. And in 1948, America announced the Marshall Plan. And the Marshall Plan is when President Truman at the time took the information from Mr. Marshall, who had given a talk at, in, at Harvard, and it was actually an incredible speech. It was not long. I thought it would be longer, considering, um, first off, if you're invited to a university to speak, I would expect it to be longer, but also that you make a whole entire economic plan out of your speech. Seems yeah. like it should be longer, <laughs> but it's worth a read. It was actually really good, and and. Um, in his speech, he said, in considering the requirements for the rehabilitation of Europe, the physical loss of life, the visible destruction of cities, factories, mines, and railroads was correctly estimated. But it has become obvious during recent months that this visible destruction was probably less serious than the dislocation of the entire fabric of the European economy. And so this caused, and this was in 1947, um, President Truman to then work up the Economic Aid Act of 1948 or the Marshall Plan. Yeah, so from 1948 to 1951, the United States spent, which at the time would have been $13.3 billion, but translated to today's dollars, is $150 billion in aid. And this is food, supplies, you, you know, you name it. The primary purpose really is to stop the spread of communism. The, yeah. the general belief is that the poorer, you know, the, the less well people are doing, the more likely they are to want to... Live in a socialist yeah. or communist society. And so, they, they didn't want that. And so... It's actually kind of interesting because what they did is they put an obvious end to to the thing. So you said it was $13.3 billion, but that was over three to four years. Yeah. So they said, you know, we're only going to give aid for this long, which I liked. But it was also very beneficial to the United States and to Western Europe because those were whose goods and marketing, I mean, and markets were, were being used is they were trying to get their good yeah. graces. They, and, and they kind <laughs> and of say, products. too, that what it kind of does is it, it builds you a customer. So yes. after 1951, they're like, all right, we're not giving you stuff, but hey, we're still selling yeah. the same. We, we're still know, here. If you, you, you just want this stuff, we're, we're selling it. 
Mm -hmm. And it's kind of fascinating because it is it appears to be very, very effective because Russia thought that that was effective, too. And so they started in 1949 the Council for Mutual Economic Assistance. And this was the Eastern Bloc's, the Eastern Europeans' response to the Marshall Plan. And so what's happening here is you've already got your Iron Curtain started. And then you've got um, the Soviets and the Eastern Bloc kind of trying to get their own influences in, which is what the, the Western Bloc did do. <laughs> so it, it just sort of amped up tensions. And so he, then the United States and 11 other countries created NATO. NATO. So yeah, in 1949... The original members, it was U.S., Canada, Belgium, Denmark, France, Iceland, Italy, Luxembourg, Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, and the U.K. As they all kind of agreed, hey, let's get into this. Uh, at the time, it was basically just a, a defensive alliance. Right. It was to protect each other in a, as a collective defense. And they had three tasks. One was deterrence and defense. The other was crisis prevention and management. And the third was cooperative security, which is a fascinating, a fascinating point. I'll just go down this right now because there's more facts to be had, but let's go somewhere else for a minute. Because you have to ask yourself, wait a second, how do you have cooperative security with each other? What's your communication like? What's going on there? And I, do you think NATO has its own secret service? Uh NATO has its own meteorology department. NATO has its own everything. NATO, yeah. How does this operate when it's not even a country? It's, it the, is truly like an umbrella to countries. It like, has a budget of $3 billion a year in, in today's oh really? dollar. Is, and, and a lot of that, I, I don't know where you know the money all goes, because that's not the budget for armies or defense. That's the budget for... The Operations. personnel, yeah, like that's just to keep the, the lights on and the people in the, the buildings, whatever. Well, I can tell you that they do indeed have their own secret service. I believe mm -hmm. it. I saw a list of like their departments and I saw meteorology on and I was going to kind of make a list and I thought, there's just too much. There's too like, much. This is, this is huge. It's huge. And and I, I really was sitting there thinking because I'm like, who who are these people responsible to except for the leaderships yeah. of the countries in which they are part of? And But their their intelligence agency is called the JISR, the Joint Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance. And this is where they work together. All of the allies in NATO work together. They analyze and share information to maximum effect. Now, this is from the NATO website. This is not like yeah. a tinfoil hat moment. <laughs> they, so they even have... All of so they have the languages on the website in Ukrainian, which seems relevant right now. Even though Ukraine is not part of NATO, they want yeah they want them to know everything. English, French, which is the official. As I say, English language. and French are the two mm -hmm. that they, I think they have to publish everything in mm -hmm. those two languages. And then they have it in Russian. Yep. <laughs> and and uh, like I saw that, like it's a very deliberate. Thing yes, absolutely. We want you guys Ukraine, to know for sure. You were Ukrainian and Russian. For sure, but it says that the objective of the of the JISR, the JI, yeah, SR, is to champion the need to share information over need to know, and so it means that they don't have to automatically share anything, but that they should, and there's a need to share. So if if you have something to share, you should share it, kind of a thing. But you don't. It's not like they need to know, and yet I have no idea. I'm very curious because initially when I started looking into this, the my understanding of NATO before I started looking into anything was this was strictly a defensive alliance where I you thought, say, if I get attacked, yeah. I'm going to tell you and you're going to come help me. And, and I, I thought, didn't realize how much more oh, yeah. there was to this. Me and, too. And when you get into some of the things, like, like in the 50s, they put a plan together and um, they they had like... I think they called them the three wise men or whatever. They said, all right, we want you you guys to get together and figure out you know, what other stuff NATO should be doing. And it was really interesting because they basically came forward and said, 
well, in addition to the defensive alliance, we should also practice, you know, non-military cooperation and political and economic cooperation, cultural cooperation, you know, information and organization and functional cooperation. And they just said, like, this is one of the quotes from the report that these guys put out is, there can be no unity or there cannot be unity in defense and disunity in foreign policy. And it really starts to seem like this is more of a, a, a or it's bigger than a defensive alliance. Right. They're saying we should also have economic and you know political mm-hmm. and cultural alliances and be building up more than than just this yeah. uh, defensive alliance. And it kind of has more of a feel of like a European Union than it does. Yes, <laughs> like. Of what I what I had assumed, which was I thought they maybe met once a year and talked about you know the state of defense. <laughs> yeah, and, and honestly, <laughs> and like threatened the piece of paper to Russia if anyone invaded. I, I didn't know this was huge. I knew they had like you know office buildings, what you know oh, whatever, yeah. but I didn't realize how big this was because I honestly did think it's just if we get attacked. We'll get everybody on the phone, say mm-hmm. we're attacked, and then we'll, you know, everybody will come to our defense. That's but exactly what it I is. It is so much bigger. So much bigger. <laughs> but yeah, so um, let's just talk really quick about the primary, we'll call them the articles, because they list out, they have something like 14 articles in the, in the treaty. And the big one is called Article 5. And Article 5 is the one that says an armed attack against, you know, one of us will require everybody to come to, you know, the aid. So if anybody gets uh, attacked on their own soil, it kind of mentions, because at the time, keep in mind, there's a lot of, like, colonies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And like that those don't count. We're still in a very adventurous time yeah. back then. but. If anybody gets attacked in in Europe or North America, that is essentially considered an attack on all of us. Mm-hmm. And that's Article Five. So, and this is what you think of when you think of yeah, NATO. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I knew of, and that is the big thing because in these articles they don't talk about the other stuff. No, they don't mention how big this is or the. You I know, wonder if we they want ever the cultural and it. economic cooperation. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't mention that, but. Uh, they define what an attack is in Article 6. So on the territory, the forces, vessels, aircraft that is in or over those territories or the Mediterranean Sea, North Atlantic area, north of the Tropic of Cancer. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of the boundaries. You know, the, These are the boundaries. If you get attacked in the boundaries, that counts. I didn't realize they were so big. I didn't realize it counted so much the seas. Yeah. I thought it was just the land. Nope, they, they've got just, and the, the seas are just these general specific ones. If it's, you get attacked in these areas, so if you're in the, you know, say the Pacific, it doesn't count, but oh, yeah. in these areas, that, that is considered an attack. And then what allows the other members in is they have an Article 10 where it says, you know, by unanimous agreement, you can invite, you know, other European states into the treaty. Mm-hmm. So it everybody has to agree and then we can expand which is kind of fascinating because they've definitely gone past europe there's they when you look at the different um levels of who's been um we'll go into this deeper too like the different partnerships that they have there's colombia in south america like it's kind of interesting where this has expanded and and all that stuff. <laughs> Speaking of expansion, in 2022, they invited Japan, yes, South Korea, New Zealand, and Australia. And if they have certain types of inv- inv- invitations, they also offer different types of plans yeah. <laughs> that people can be. And I'm going to jump in and talk about this just really fast because there is, there's, I mean, this is, again, this is like the operations of, of the European Union, only different. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on, and you don't know until you dive in. But one of the first things that they, um, actually, I'm not going to dive in. I'm going to dive into that later. The 
but remember the partnerships for peace because we are going to talk about let's talk about that in the appropriate timeline yeah they, let's go back to the timeline then. let's go back to the timeline but they do different different plans for different people <laughs> So, so going back to the timeline, it's 1949. NATO mm-hmm. has been created. It was mostly created in response to to Russia, mm-hmm. uh, or, or it, the Soviet Union, really. So the USSR had recently uh, helped out with some elections in Poland and Hungary, <laughs> who then happened to uh, helped out in quotations. Yeah, you that's guys. right. You can't see the air quotes. We brought in our tanks. They very to help, forcefully uh, helped yeah. out. <laughs> so they formed NATO, 1949. You got other stuff going on, the uh, mm-hmm. Berlin blockade. There's a lot of stuff. One of the other things that I thought was kind of interesting is that it was not only formed for uh, the Soviet aggression, but it was also formed to keep German yes. military from building up. Because they were very afraid. And this actually leads into the next part. Um they were very afraid of the influences of Mussolini and Hitler, who are, yeah, who are still <laughs> around at the time. They're very afraid of their impact on these other regions as well. Yeah. So, 1949, um, the next kind of thing that kind of happened: Greece and Turkey join oh. in 1952. And I have gone down the rabbit hole here. All right, let's hear it. So don't forget that in Greece, they're having their communist issues at this time. They're having their civil war. They're just coming off of their civil war in 1946 to 1949 because they were one of the places where the Soviets came in and helped helped out again with quotations um, to have the communists take over the government. Now, this happened in Vietnam and this happened in in so Poland, like all yeah, of these Poland, places. Hungary. Uh, this was part of the Iron Cur- Curtain issue. This is what this is what Russia or the Soviets were doing at the time. They were trying to pack everybody into being communist, but also create a buffer zone for themselves. So the two countries of Greece and Turkey, they both joined in 1952 because it's the same reason. And I, okay, so, oh my gosh, I have, I have so many notes on this, it's ridiculous. So Turkey does not actually share a border with Russia, but they do share the Black Sea. And the only way to get out of the Black Sea is through Turkey. They have two channels. They call it, they call it the Turkish Straits. They have two channels there. And um, they are, one is Istanbul and the other one is Kanakale. I looked up how you say it. <laughs> Canicale. And you can't get in the Black Sea without them. You can't get out of the Black Sea without them. So they are absolutely critical for Russia because that's its only vein into this particular region of the world. So the Soviets had been really good friends with the Turkish people for a long, for since the 1930s. They had the Turkish national movement to stop Ottoman and Western occupiers because they were trying to come in for, for the channel. And they pledged cooperation with each other in the 1927 Treaty of Moscow. Okay, this is, that's the critical point right there. Remember that. So as time goes on, oh, actually, before, before this, um, they have a meeting in Switzerland. And the meeting is between the UK, France, Italy, and Turkey. And this is, remember, post-World War One, pre-World War Two, And so the, Turkey is promising that there's going to be a demilitarized zone at those two straits, at those two city areas and the straits that are connected to them. So in 1925, the Soviets and the Turkish people promised each other that they would never form alliances with other countries. Right. (laughs) So the Soviet Union had gotten mad that they had made an alliance with the UK and with France and with Italy. But then also um, they had already been friends. So they are offended. Russia's offended and says, we're not going to make any alliances. And it kind of gave me like the office alliances 
Shrew, like Dwight Shrew and, and Jim. <laughs> like, you like to form an alliance. You can't form alliances with anybody else. Even though I know that that's how it works. <laughs> it was really funny to me in my head. So in 1934, the British ambassador requests to Turkey and they that they want military bases on the Straits. Now, not necessarily British military bases, but military bases. So Turkey's promised non, no military. British says, actually, you definitely should. So they have the Monroe Convention. I could be butchering that. It's in French. Um, and so what they determined in the convention are the following items. A civilian vessels are free to travel in peacetimes throughout any of the straits. In peacetimes, you can still only have a limited number of military vessels. So you have to have specific weapons, specific tonnage. There's a hilarious story about the United States <laughs> and the weapons that happens later on in the conflicts when they start putting weapons in Turkey from America <laughs> in the Cold War. But number three is any warships passing through Turkey have to have pre-authorization. It is uh, 14 days of pre-authorization from non-Black Sea connecting countries and eight days for countries that belong to the coast of the Black Sea. So if you are in war, Turkey, and Turkey is not involved, the warships of the nations at war are not allowed to pass through unless they're leaving, unless they're returning home to go to base. Or I guess they can come home and go to base too, maybe if they're Russia. That was unclear. But mostly if, if you're leaving, they'll let you out. And the U.S. did not sign this convention. They didn't, they didn't, they declined to send any representation. Probably because there were a lot of tensions between um, some of the countries there. But the last one is fairly fascinating because it says if Turkey is at war, they can decide who goes through the channels all they want. I was going to say, like, <laughs> that would just be the rule anyway. Like, once you're at war... I don't even know if you'd hold any treaties. No, yeah, I wouldn't. Like, I wouldn't. You know, <laughs> but, I'll let you through if you help me attack whoever. So this is 1934, and do you remember how upset that Russia was? I mean, the Soviets were at the previous, you know, when they're like, we're not going to have military. Well, <laughs> at the League of Nations in 1936, the Soviets were like, no, we want free passage. We, we want to get through. And the British were like, no, we don't think the Soviets should ever be allowed through. You shouldn't even let them through. And so they signed the above rules that I talked about into a treaty, which makes it like international law of sorts. And so because Britain conceded because they didn't want Turkey to fall to Hitler and Mussolini, because that would have been a big deal. Um, and so this is in 36. And world, so Mussolini and Hitler are just starting to build up in their countries because World War II it's 1939 to 1945. So they're very afraid of that. But that's also why the Soviets were like, no, let us out. Let us through. Let us let us fight, you know, because they want to get over to Italy like they're wanting to fight. And um, so there's a limited number of war vessels. Um, but this this is this is another caveat here. This might be why Russia annexed Crimea. Because there is something called the Black Sea Fleet that has been around since 1783. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, the Black Sea Fleet was divided between Ukraine and Russia. And Russia got 82% of the vessels. Now, a country can create a new fleet of war vessels inside the Black Sea and never have to go to the Strait. So do you know what they have in Crimea? They have the facilities to create warships and to port them. So a major port for the Ukrainian fleet, which was full at the time Russia annexed them, is called Sevastopol, probably called Sevastopol. <laughs> and um, when it was annexed in 2014, the Russian part of the Black Sea fleet wouldn't let the Ukrainian naval ships leave. So they took 54 of their 67 ships. And this is Ukraine's only major waterway. Yeah. Like there's there's not a north side they can they can come out on even though probably terrible building stuff in that northern part of Russia. So 
anyway, so they were going to return them, the ships. In, this is in 2014, so we've really jumped around here. But uh, because Russia said they're too old, and so if Ukraine uses them, it'll only hurt Ukrainian people. <laughs> but then they wouldn't give them back because Ukraine wouldn't sign another ceasefire. So they kept them and incorporated them into their own fleet anyway. But that alone, if you go down that rabbit hole alone, there's so much stuff. Oh, it's just crazy just for Turkey. But you had the Turkey Straits crisis, which is what this was before, you know, not the 2014 part, from 1936 to 1953. And things were kind of low until 1946. And then they amp up in 1946 because Russia wanted a revision to the Monroe Convention and wanted a permanent military presence, including itself, on the Straits. And it scared Turkey. And so then Turkey then accepted aid from the Truman Doctrine and then joined NATO in 1952 so that they wouldn't have to. Well, then the port's safe. Russia can't yeah. come in and just say, all right, this is our port mm-hmm. now. Cause they, yeah, because they were afraid. Because the Truman Doctrine says, um, he told, Truman told Congress, it must be the policy of the United States to support free peoples who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or outside pressures. So that's, you know, part of that whole thing. But it's, it's just kind of fascinating. And another fun fact, if I can remember how to pronounce the name of the city, but the Canal Calais has the largest bridge, the largest suspension bridge in the world. And it connects Europe with Asia. So that's just a fun, fascinating fact there, too. But there's been a lot of tensions with Georgia on the Black Sea, too. I mean, it just goes on. The notes I have on this are are probably too long for what we're talking about, (laughs) because we're talking about NATO. But it was, and when you go back to, because Greece, if you look at the map, you come out of the Canal Calais Strait, and you're in the Grecian islands and then so there were huge problems with having um, the militarization of uh, those islands to kind of create a dangerous like to create conflict for Turkey and that area. I thought it was interesting that Greece and Turkey joined at the same time just because I always thought they had kind of a conflict conflicting yeah but that's it was because they were connected in that fighting and there were a couple of islands that were really close to that that were in question so they were together on this because of this very same thing yeah that's interesting so that was 1952 and they joined Mm -hmm. in uh, 1955 germany joins yes and that's west germany really because remember this time germany is split and the Soviets essentially control uh, East Germany, and the UK and France and the US were were kind of controlling West Germany. Right. So then West Germany kind of becomes its own, you know, country. And yeah, they just gave it up. And I have to, I did wonder, because these are the three, you know, the, the three or four countries that leave Western Germany to let them have their sovereignty again. And I wonder if... <laughs> My first thought, and this is like an office style reference, I was like, I wonder if the Soviets were like, why would you do that? You just gave up land. What? <gasps> People do this? Like, I wonder if it freaked them out. And, and there is kind of a weird thing. Like, we're going to let them, uh, you know, manage themselves. Oh, but they're also joining NATO. Yes. So so they joined NATO. That was in 1955. Mm-hmm. And, and Russia's still there. And Russia's, Russia's still, still in East in, Berlin until that wall falls yeah, down. Yeah, which is like 1990. Mm-hmm. So they're still there. And at the same time, in this 1955, the Soviets formed their own, you know, their own version of NATO. So they, they come up with the Warsaw Pact. Yes. And they invite all their friends, you know, into the Warsaw, you know, Pact. So Yeah. You got Albania who was the first to withdraw in 1968. And then you have Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Hungary, Poland, and Romania, and, of course, the USSR. Yeah, so they, they kind of do their own NATO. And uh, the, the interesting thing to me 
really is that it kind of seems like this things might be coming to to like a head you mm-hmm. know like all right we'll form our super alliance you got your super alliance and but i don't know that there were any real conflicts that happened because of this or around the the time well what's yeah what's kind of fascinating though is that shortly after it started these these friendship countries in the warsaw pact were like i think Soviet Union's just trying to pressure us because they just came oh, yeah. in and were like, you need to do this and you need to do that. And um, and I don't remember all the dates. I know we kind of talked about it in the Cold War, but Poland and Hungary, they both had several times been like, okay, let's get out from under yes. the Soviet rule and basically just weren't able to. You know, well, the they had. The tanks in and oh, yeah. stopped you know, their their The anti-communist groups came into Czechoslovakia and Hungary yeah. between 1956 and 1968 and the Soviets just came in and nope. Yep, so they they stomped out any dissent. Uh-huh. So outside, but there really wasn't any conflicts going on with the West yeah. essentially at that time. Uh, there did end up being some over, you know, you had the Korean conflict that happened mm-hmm. after NATO was formed. Then you had Vietnam. There were conflicts that potentially happened, but they weren't no. happening in These the European. particular places. It really just seemed like a fortification of an iron curtain. Like it was, it was like, no, we want to make sure our influence is here, and and we do it that way. Yeah. So uh, after Germany. Um, there really wasn't anybody else that joined until like the 80s and Spain joined. Yes. And then things start to get interesting in the 90s. Yeah. And actually even, I I even found like Spain was fascinating to me because I thought, why? Why did that take so long? But it turns out it's because they were under a dictator. Yeah. And so they, they waited until their last dictator, which was in 1975, they had their first election in 1977, and the Constitution wasn't even approved until 1978. So then they got a couple years under their belt and joined in 1982. Like, so, because I had wondered, because they seemed like they'd be a good fit. I didn't even know they had a dictatorship. Yeah, they just had, a, like, throughout, you know, like, like World War Two, they were kind of the odd man out as far mm-hmm. as, you know, you think, okay, why aren't they joining in the fight? Well, they, they got yeah. their own. They just had, like, a civil war not too long before that, and then they got, like, the dictatorships, and they 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 were not uh, essentially feeling, you know, like the uh, one of the European countries. They were just kind of their own yeah. selves. Yeah, and, yeah, it was, it was really fascinating because there was another gap until 1999, and then 1999 had... A, a nice little chunklet of a few of yeah. a few countries. So let's go back to the to the 90s and where the USSR essentially breaks up. So oh, that was a, a big idea. a big change mm-hmm. is in you know st- starting in like 89 going to like 91 the, the various wall comes down. Soviet states start they all leave start leaving mm-hmm. uh USSR becomes Russia and the relationships with NATO and, and whatever, everything starts changing. Right. This is when NATO comes in with their partnership for peace program. Yeah. And and they come in and they're like, hey, you guys, like, we're, you don't need to be part of NATO, but we'll help you with your training and we'll help you with your defense and we'll help you, like, learn how to do it as this part of the partnership for peace. And what's fascinating is, even though Finland has just recently joined, they've been part of the Partnership for Peace for over 30-some-odd years. Like, it's it's been a big um, part of their history. Yeah, so Partnership for Peace, I think the, the treaty, or I don't even know if treaty is the right word, but it was signed in 93, and it was a program that was intended to essentially bring uh, Russia and the former Soviet states kind of into the conversation. Mm-hmm. And... The documentation that I saw was that the U.S. thought, "All right, this is how this is what we're going to do to expand NATO," and Russia thought, "Okay, this is going to be kind of the NATO replacement. You know, this this yeah. will be the new thing." 
And it's funny because the Secretary of State at the time, Warren Christopher, uh, he just said, yeah, Yeltsin thought that, but he was misunderstood, probably probably because he was drunk. <laughs> so he, that's what he had in like his uh, memoirs. Is, but it, it is kind of interesting because around that time in the early 90s, so East Germany fell and became part of West Germany, which, or, or part of Germany, which put them into NATO, and, and Russia gets really scared. Yeah. So um, uh, George uh, Bush is talking to Gorbachev in in the 90s, and he basically says, we're not moving any further east. You know, this is, NATO doesn't have any reason, and and the, he, the quote is, you know, it's important to have guarantees that if the United States keeps its presence in Germany within the framework of NATO, not an inch of NATO's present military jurisdiction will spread in an eastern direction. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things that Russia brings up to be like, see, you're all liars. <laughs> you know, you said NATO wouldn't, you know, go east. And... Want to know what you said, Russia? Yeah. <laughs> there, there's a lot of what uh, what they said. Um, but yeah, in 1993, um, that, that was under, I think, uh, Clinton. But Clinton and Yeltsin were somewhat, you know, friendly. And I, Yeltsin I, thought mm-hmm. that this was... Uh, kind of a beginning of a new, you know, agreement with with Russia. Well, because even before this, they had the North Atlantic Cooperation Council, which was kind of trying to get everybody to chat with each other. And um, it wasn't all that successful, but they wanted an open dialogue between NATO and the Warsaw Pact. So NATO was a part party, and the Warsaw Pact countries were a party. Cause they wanted, you know, to get yeah. conversation started. And when that didn't really work out, they had, and it wasn't working, they started the Partnership for Peace. And it's interesting because, I mean, it's been 30 some odd years since this happened. But, you know, I think of the way that Russia handled the uprisings with the communists. And then here, because they're trying to get their influence everywhere, and it did. And then here they're like, oh, let's just, we're going to help you. And it did. <laughs> like the impact it had. Just kind of a fascinating way. But one of the really interesting things I just want to randomly interject here is that when you look at the map from the top of the world, Russia and the United States are actually fairly close to each other. Not yeah. just not just from Palin's home in in, uh, in Alaska, Alaska where she can just see she can everything. See it, that's right? <laughs> but but it's quite close, and and that's why they have that the missile defense silos in Montana because that's the closest place to hit to hit Moscow, and it's just really interesting, especially with the different missiles that are made, just how how close everything really is. But now I have to side say another story about those missiles. Remember how it said that. There's limitations through the canals or through the straits of yeah. Turkey. Well, during the Cold War, they had ballistic missiles on some of the U.S. warships that came up through. And Russia was like, hey, they have ballistic missiles. And they're like, they're not guns. It specifically says guns. <laughs> so they let them take the ballistic missiles. That's right. <laughs> missiles, fine. No guns. Oh, I just thought that was hilarious. Loophole. Uh... That is funny. So they have the program for peace. And a lot of countries were for this because in a way it's like free money and free assistance. And and it's hard to say no to uh, that. You feel like it should ramp tensions down. Yeah. It's like, okay, we're, we're working together. We're, we're being friendly. Yeah. And if it's everybody. And in, in 1997, they had like a NATO-Russia founding act. And in it, they... Basically, like it starts out, the text is like, NATO and Russia do not consider each other as adversaries, which is kind of funny considering yeah, how NATO exactly started. exactly what NATO was made for. Yeah. <laughs> and But they came up with a number of things that they were going to work on, and it was mostly like arms control, nuclear safety, other conflict convent, you know, prevention, uh, stuff like that, it, and also to increase you know the transparency so that they were talking more about, here's what our military is doing, and and so on. And it was supposed to be a, a very helpful thing 
you know, like this is supposed to be the beginning of a new relationship. One of the things that it has in that 2000, or, or sorry, 1997 uh, treaty, and treaty might not be the right word, agreement, but it has a quote, you know, this is a quote from it, is that the member states of NATO reiterate that they have no intention, plan, or reason to deploy nuclear weapons on the territory of new members. And this is another one that Russia points to saying, see, you said this, and I don't even know if they did it with any new members because I, I found a map that shows where uh, nuclear bases are in mm. Europe, and, like, those are... They're old members. Like we have, <laughs> we have bases in Turkey and Greece. Uh, there's Italy, uh, Germany, UK, but I don't. As far as I know, what constitutes new? Just before '97? Yeah, like, that's so. the way I see it. Is like '97 is the cutoff date, and there were a lot of you know people added after that. So '99 yeah. had Hungary and Poland and. Czechia or Czechoslovakia. Mm-hmm. 2004 brought in a, a bunch, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia. Yeah, that was the biggest one. They they all just flooded in. And I kind of was like, why? Like, what was that? Why did they decide to do that? But unfortunately, um, other rabbit holes took me and I only have a little bit, a little bit of information. Yeah, and, and to me, like, I didn't really look into it, but for most of them, the reason would simply be, we already had them come here. You know, well, they already, we've already been invaded. You know, Poland and Hungary always felt like the Soviets kind of came in and forced that they had Soviet tanks and armies when, you know, they were saying, okay, we, we want out of the communism. And the Soviets brought the tanks on and said, nope, you know, you're staying. So I think they already had kind of a built up, you know, they, they might come try this again and wanted well, safety. They had also, what had been happening is we were at war in the United States with Iraq at the time. Yeah. And President Bush said each of those seven countries had been very supportive in and played supportive roles in the operations in Iraq. So it might have actually been in a, in a way, because Iraq is now on the table to come in. But before that, it was probably to say, and why don't you protect us from Iraq, too? Like, if you, if you come and get us, then Iraq, then, then we're going to, because this is after, you know, 2001 and the, the towers and, and things like Which that. Which is an interesting thing. So the one time in history that Article 5 of NATO has ever been invoked was on September 12th of 2001. Oh wow! It was in response to the, to the twin towers. To the twin towers, and the the very next day they invoked it, which is really interesting considering they didn't they know, didn't who, know they were who it was. They mm-hmm. we're under attack, and we don't know who. But when we find out, all of us we're are all coming to kick get you. Your butt. <laughs> and so the, the the weird thing with that is so. Uh, there were some NATO responses that came out of that. They essentially sent um, some naval and air force down into the Mediterranean Sea to look for uh, essentially terrorist or smuggling operations that might be supplying arms, you know, anything like that. Mm-hmm. Well, that, and you do have to put yourself in a place where you can go somewhere faster, too. Yeah, which that was another one of the most interesting things to me with, with the NATO stuff is, like, you go on to the NATO site and you say, okay, where, when and where of NATO troops been deployed so the purpose of nato was they were worried about russia aggression or or soviet aggression the entire time that the ussr existed they never deployed any nato troops and isn't that so effective exactly (laughs) like that's going to be the argument but then as soon as they that's when they started so they um deployed stuff in that first gulf you know war which was in 1990, that was like the first deployment of official NATO troops. And you know what's fascinating? Because as I go through this, I realize that there are beyond layers of things I didn't understand and I didn't know. And in 1990, I'm super young. So, you know, when I think I know what's happening, I realize how little I know. I would, 
I feel like that's a good rabbit hole to go down too, because I think, why would you make that decision to send NATO to this area? It didn't make any sense to me. And, and also having these countries be so against Iraq, like, I'm like, why? Like, I, I don't know, because I can't. I... And, and even that one is weird to me, because the, as far as NATO is concerned, there is no attack on European, so there's no NATO Article 5 stuff being triggered. It's literally, all right, we're going to start acting more, like, it's not the defensive alliance anymore. It's, it's the it's like a country. It, like... It's acting. It, it really is similar <laughs> uh-huh. to, to say uh, you know a country or like a version of the United Nations that's kind of exclusive. Like this is our United Nations sort of thing. Yeah. And it it does kind of behave differently. Like mm-hmm. it really isn't just that defensive alliance. And they go out. They had tons of different operations. So the one that first one that they did in Iraq in ninety. That's called Operation Anchor Guard, which I I really like their naming stuff. They they I, always come up with cool names because they also did Ace Guard, Allied Goodwill, Agile Genie. Agile Genie. They got a lot of bunch of they, they, all their names are pretty Sounds pretty like cool. A, a good toilet cleaning name. The, the weirdest get, get one. All the way in there. <laughs> Operation Allied Goodwill. I mean that's not really a cool name. But here's what they did with that one, is that was to provide humanitarian aid to Russia and and other states that had been part of the USSR. But they used their transport planes that they used. They're what are called uh, AWACS, A-W-A-C-S. They're surveillance planes. Did they have like a large balloon attached to these surveillance planes? No, <laughs> but... They have a massive, what looks like a satellite dish on the, on the plane. Mm-hmm. So if, I, if you've ever seen those I planes have. that have those, sur- that's what they were using. They're like, oh, here's our uh, transport planes. <laughs> and they're flying them into Russia and these other states bringing humanitarian aid. But they're all surveillance planes. This was pre-Google Maps. and Well, pre-Google Maps. I was going to say, <laughs> this is the beginning of Google Maps. You yeah. know, This is where they we're like, all right, let's go map out Russia while they're letting us into their airspace. Uh. I wonder, do you know why they needed assistance? Was it uh, I think it was just they were having economic problems because mm-hmm. they had just left, you know, communism and they yeah. weren't functioning that well. And so it was, hey, we'll, we'll give you some food and whatever. Uh, I honestly think it was just an excuse to yeah. go send your surveillance planes in. But it does say in. goodwill, so it's really hard That's right. to this think is, of it This is way. allied goodwill, folks. <laughs> like, we're, this isn't Operation is Spy on Your out? Neighbors. Bad intentions portion <laughs> of this name. But, yeah, it, it, I thought that one was a really interesting one. Is we'll, makes... we'll help you out, Russia, there with uh, some aid. And then we use these surveillance planes to deliver all the aid. <laughs> it makes me think of North Korea and how North Korea always threatens to explode other countries right <laughs> before they need aid. And so they're like, yes, we'll take some aid. <laughs> and then they drop the aid down. I'm like, I wonder if those planes that dropped that aid had, had antennas on them too. Uh, I, I'm convinced now that, that, that all the, you know, those sort of things, uh, there's uh, something behind it that's oh, a little sneaky. I, I, ugh, it's like a teenager. Always got to have a secondary plan. Yeah. So... Uh, going back to, uh, I guess, some of the things that NATO has done, you know, they didn't really deploy any forces until 1990. Uh, they've gone in, they they currently, they've done stuff, they do a lot of stuff in Africa, and it's mostly humanitarian stuff, and um, a lot of it is training. Mm-hmm. So they do a lot of training. They they were doing that in Iraq, so, and, and even recently there's, they were training the Iraqi security forces, mm-hmm. and they're trying to make them capable of, you know, handling their own country. You know, being the security force for their own country. Yes. So they do that in the African Union. They've done that in like uh, Sudan and and uh, Darfur, I think, which is in Sudan. But they've done that a bunch of places, and those are a lot of their missions are to provide humanitarian aid and training to countries and a lot of these countries request it yeah and they, 
you know, can you help us out? So I think there was one. Because um, they also have the United Nations who the, does stuff like this too. Yep. And it is interesting to me that they will go to NATO and ask for stuff when the United Nations exists. But I guess you take whatever help you can get when you need help. When you're desperate. Yeah. And I, I looked it up. I think they currently have, NATO says they have, I think, five active NATO missions. One of them's in Kosovo, and that one is, uh, they say they got 3,500 personnel there responsible for security tasks that are not appropriate for the police. And it says they're lightly armed. Yeah. How do you lightly arm someone who's doing security tasks not, oh, maybe they're, maybe they're even less than It's the no police. ballistic missiles is the way I see it. <laughs> You let them have it in their backpack because it's not a gun. <laughs> but yeah, they've got uh, another one. They, it's called Operation Sea Guardian where they're just uh, flying over the Mediterranean, have ships in the Mediterranean looking for terrorists and smuggling stuff. Fascinating. Uh, and yeah, right now they the big one that they're doing is air policing for countries around Russia that do not have an air force. Wow. That's very kind because this is very expensive. Oh, it is very expensive because that 3 billion that you know they spend a year on running things is paperwork stuff. Yeah. The rest of these expenses go towards the country's own, you know, military budgets, which if you look into it, it's really kind of interesting to look into so they came up with that rule that i think uh, i've got it in my notes i think it was 2006 where yeah 2006 they agreed that all the nato countries should be spending two percent of their gdp on essentially military or defensive uh, stuff which most of them don't initially like in 2014 only three of the countries were actually spending two percent and coincidentally in 2022 that's bumped up quite a bit but well that's because didn't trump oh he chastised them but 2022 <laughs> yes. was more of the that's there actually might be a good reason to be spending it was 2019 where trump was like maybe we should leave yeah we're paying too much we're paying too much. You guys aren't doing what you said you'd do. But it's interesting because you can go on NATO's site and they publish. This is what everybody's spending. Wow. So you can see what people are spending on their on their defensive budgets. And it's kind of amusing. So they talk about the defense expenditure in like millions of U.S. dollars. And they've got a list of all the countries that are part of NATO and how much they spend. Uh, the NATO total uh, for 2022 was, that's a trillion. Yeah. So 1.189 trillion. Wow. And of that, the U.S. is 821 billion. Of that. <laughs> and the rest of them make up whatever is less. So the, the U.S. is 821. Is that Montenegro? Uh, so they're on there. So, but I didn't see them as a country. Are they a country on here? Yeah, I think they're on there. Oh, I missed it. Their expenditures in 2022 was 100, um, $107 million, which I don't, you know, we can find out what their GDP, because wow. they actually, here's their, they have a table where they show expenditures as a share of GDP. So Montenegro's, they're 107 Seven million is one point seven five percent of their That's close to two GDP, and it's supposed to be two. It's supposed to be two, but again, there's only seven countries that made it to two. Wow! And the, the United rest States them, looks like they're at three and a half. Yeah, the U.S. was at three point four seven. They are the highest. No, no, they are not. Greece. Oh, 3. really? Three point seven six. Greece is pulling their weight. Good job, Greece. Yeah, and you got some others. Uh, Slovakia, they're too even. Like right. they're they're following the letter of the law right down to the. Well, Greece is probably back in that conserv 
concerned realm. Yeah. Where you've got, because I did think about, you know, with the rules that they have for those straights. Yeah. And I thought, what has Russia, you know, what are they going to do? Like, Well, there's been a lot of talk about what's going on in Ukraine. Russia was like, we're not going to let any ships, because Russia essentially controls that sea. Because they have that, they got that the, fleet, that the, fleet, the, the Black Sea fleet. So they control that uh, Black Sea. You know, it's kind of fascinating because in 2016, Romania wanted to have its own flotilla. They called it like their own, their own fleet out there, and Bulgaria vetoed it. Well, yeah. So it could have, it could have been a thing, but it's not. That one's weird because that one just seems like spite. Because in my mind, I just think, what's Romania gonna do? Romania with their at fleet? least touches, at least touches the Black Sea. <laughs> like yeah, but like, what would Bulgaria's reason for being like, no, we don't want mm-hmm. them to have a fleet? You know, like when you know that the the Russia has a huge fleet there, yeah, and you're like, oh well, we would like some ships, and they're like, no, you can't have any ships. Well, because they were both part of the Warsaw Pact, so you think that they would be have I don't know more of a connection, but maybe that's why they were frustrated at each other. But we have NATO has several global partnerships that we've already talked about that they're not full members, but they're partners. Yeah, and Afghanistan is one, which that surprised me with all of the changes in Afghanistan. Yeah, but I also feel like there's a little bit of uh, the U.S. just says, all right, Afghanistan is, is in. Like, yeah. That's the way I see it playing down. Is... <laughs> they have Australia, Colombia, Iraq, which also surprised me, Japan, the Republic of Korea, which is the southern one, Mongolia, New Zealand, and Pakistan. But they also have some who are more seriously invited, which is Bosnia. And a country I have to be embarrassingly say I've never heard of before, Herzegovina. 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 That's close <laughs> enough. I've never heard of that country so before. So I only hear that Bosnia and Herzegovina are, are always next to each other together. Oh my gosh! It I might be one country even, as far as I know. It there they have two different spots on the because on I, the list. I only hear of them together. Maybe they're best friends. That's right. And then they had Georgia, Sweden, who is the next probably in line because they've already been in talks. They go to the yeah. meetings. My understanding they haven't is been, they haven't Turkey hasn't approved them, and that was the last oh. holdup, is that Turkey has some issues with Sweden and that that's what's holding them up from becoming a member. Because I do believe that they wanted to come in the same time as Finland. Yeah, they both really wanted an expedited entry after Ukraine got invaded because they feel like mm-hmm. there's a And that is their chance. exact reasoning, which I was actually hoping to talk about before we finish, so I'm glad you brought that up. Because uh, Finland's president... Uh, Sal- Sally... <laughs> Finland's president. I don't know how to say anybody... I need more culture in my life. Um, said that Finland sought NATO membership because Russia had invaded Ukraine and then showed that it didn't respect the non-aligned countries, which is why a lot of those countries never joined Ukraine. It's because they didn't want to show any kind of partisanship. They just kind of wanted to be left out of it. And so once they showed that they were willing to attack Ukraine, and that's another one. Ukraine is number five on that list of future people. But that is a complicated mix right there. Because so Ukraine potentially, they they went through a lot of the process and NATO just, I don't even know what NATO's rules are, but NATO did the same thing with Georgia and they said, you guys are too corrupt. You got to fix the corruption. And they don't explain what that means. They don't, you don't know, I don't know yeah. what they're really saying they need to change. They just said, okay, you're too corrupt. You have to change. And then they don't say what that is but ukraine potentially could have been a member they were the process i think started in like 2008 or something like that oh wow there was a a while yeah but for some of them it does take a long time to to get in but i know that now it's off the table 
because they don't want to come into an active war right now. Because, because Russia invaded Ukraine and is currently yeah. occupying parts of Ukraine, if they were to add them now, it would mean instant war. Yeah. Like everyone and, is instantly at war with Russia. So it's, I know that they won't add them as it's going, but yeah. I suspect that as soon as it ends, yeah, they're, they're back on the add. table. But yeah, in 2008, they had a Bucharest sum- summit, mm-hmm. and here's a quote from from that is, NATO welcomes Ukraine's and Georgia's Euro-Atlantic aspirations for membership in NATO. We agreed today that these countries will become members of NATO. Fascinating. That was from 2008. And then 2022 was when um, Australia, Korea, Japan, and New Zealand were Were somewhat invited. And they're allowed to come to the meetings and be there, like Sweden comes to the meetings. They're just not allowed to have any kind of say. Yeah, so they're allowed as, to know the information in the meeting. As that level of, I think they call them like partners. Yeah, they're called partners. And then if you join, you're you're called a member. Global partners and global partnerships. But they have like a um, a 2030 agenda that they published after the 2022 meeting that they had, and they're expecting. To, to get some of those Pacific members into NATO by 2030. It's kind of fascinating because every time we do this, I cannot help but connect to the book 1984. <laughs> and I'm like, remember the part where they're like, who are we friends with? And there's like three countries or like yeah. three groups. And they're like, no, no, we're mad at them. And I'm like, is this how we get to that part where like we have NATO, and then somebody else makes a Warsaw Pact type thing, and then and then they're there, and then and then we just kind of rotate which one we're alliancing with. <laughs> Cause, yeah, because yeah. this is a kind of a world dominating type kind of thing. Because you also have the United Nations, but that does kind of have a different focus. Yeah, and the United Nations has you know Russia is a veto holding member, member mm-hmm. of the Defense Council of the United Nations. So mm-hmm. if you're concerned about Russia and you want to do something to counter aggression, you can't do it through the United Nations. It's no. just not possible. But I, the way I kind of see it is NATO invites these other countries to do the Warsaw Pact sort of things. Is If you are like, all right, here's who can join, you know, U.S., all of Europe, you know, this. Not you, Russia. Not you, China. <laughs> But we'll take the countries around you, mm-hmm. you know, we'll, we'll go after Japan and Korea and New Zealand and Australia, but not you, China. Then those countries are going to start aligning. Oh, yeah. Have you heard of you the BRICS alliance sort of thing? BRICS? It's B-R-I-C-S, and it no. stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Those are some massively populated areas of the world. And, <laughs> and they are starting to work together primarily economically yeah. against mostly the United States, but potentially the kind of the, a NATO alliance, you know, United States and European Union are very close, at least kind of right mm-hmm. now. Uh, but these countries are working together to say, all right, you know, let's, let's change things so that it's not, we don't have just this one massive superpower. Let's become our own, you know, let's start our own second equal superpower sort of thing. Because if you take the population, and this doesn't count for resources, but of India and China together, they make a third of the population of the whole world. Of the world. Of the whole world. Yeah, and then and you throw in the resources. Russia has tons of resources. Yep. Brazil, China they have a pretty good population. They've got manpower. decent resources. They and can build things very quickly. Yeah. Whole cities in very short amounts of time. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that sort of thing plays out. And yeah. the the NATO stuff, I'm not sure partnerships are as strong as uh, you'd, you'd potentially want to believe. It's true. It's like, you know, what we said about Turkey, where it's like, if we're at war, or if there's anything, all bets are off. Like, yep. like this is, you know, just the nature of the world 
you try to have a nice agreement, but it doesn't. And and NATO out. went through some bumpy stuff in the in like 1966. France got kind of mad, and they kind of wanted to leave. Mm-hmm. And there was a big thing trying to keep them. And the headquarters initially, the headquarters for NATO started in London. Then they moved to France, and then in 1966, France got kind of upset, and or they thought. They basically said, it kind of feels like you're subjugating us, is that you're telling us what to do. We're going to make our own decisions, and we'll, and the, the response was, yeah, you're allowed to do that. You know, definitely make your own decisions. We want you to stay. So they stayed, but they, because of that, they're like, all right, headquarters are moving, and then they went to Belgium. Yeah. Because there was this kind of conflict with France at the time. Mm, the waffles are better there, too. That's right. So, yeah, I'm not sure the article, you know, NATO's never really been called into question. The one time that the the primary purpose was invoked was related to the September 11th attack. So you really do wonder, is that proof that it's super effective? Is it, you know? Well, you can tell by Ukraine that it's been effective, even if it's, the opposite because Poland wouldn't help Ukraine because Poland couldn't help with manpower or else they would pull all of these other countries into war. Oh, that's war. not true. No? You're allowed, so, because, like, the U.S. went to Vietnam, they went to Korea, like, unless you're attacked, nothing happens. If you attack or, or you join something, as long as it's not on your territory, it doesn't count. See, I was under the impression that America could send troops to train Ukrainians, but they could not participate in fighting. So that, to me, that's not a NATO thing. It's just an act of war for Russia. So that's my impression. The way that I understood it is that Russia would see that as an act of war, and potentially they would say, you know, if the U.S. is going to war with us, then there's no limits. You yeah. know, this is a nuclear power and we'll do everything. And so the U.S. has been very careful. The one, the one thing that I cannot wrap my head around is why it's okay for us to send, you know, missiles and tanks and whatever else. And why that isn't considered an act of war. Like, okay, we got you know, killed by Russia or U.S. artillery and tanks, but it was Ukrainian boots, so it doesn't count. <laughs> I don't like, know. I don't, I don't understand that Maybe because at all, just but. manpower, straight manpower. There's something to be said that if you add another 10,000 troops, the manpower has more capabilities of operating more tanks and more this and more that. And maybe that is where they decided to draw the line in the sand because a lot, of treaties a lot of agreements say you're allowed to send money you're not allowed to send people i mean even in taiwan yeah you're allowed to send money and resources and weapons you're not allowed to send people and maybe because once you do send um people you're you've invested in a different way yeah it's one of those things that it might be in treaties but logically i just can't wrap my head around why that would be okay but but this is a fascinating place to go down and so much bigger than i thought it was gonna be yeah as they all have been like i get like really nerdy excited and then it's hard for me to go to bed the night before we do this because i'm like oh my gosh did you know this did you know this and my husband's like no (laughs) (laughs) but i think it's amazing oh all right. Now, did you have anything else? No. Okay. Well, let's wrap this up. Well, thanks for joining us. Yep. Thanks, everyone. Bye. See you.